0: Well, good morning, Blueprint. Uh, It truly is an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, For those of you that I don't know, uh, my name is Trent Egbert. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, And it truly is a privilege um, to bring the word of God to you this morning. As uh, Jenny read, we'll be in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Let's read it again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with them in glory. Let's pray. God, as we sang about your faithfulness, So we sang about it all being about you, Lord, it's so easy for those words to just come out of our mouths, but functionally, we don't believe it. Functionally, we go to these functional idols that promise so much, but like Jeremiah says, they are broken cisterns that can hold no water, God. Help us to see the holes in our idols and only the perfection that you are. It is all about you, and it is all about your faithfulness. No one here would be here without your faithfulness, God. And so I pray that you would be with us, you would remind us of your grace, and upon that rock, we would be able to then go forth and bear fruit. It's in your son's name, only through Christ, we pray. Amen. So as I studied this passage, I was reminded of a recent graduation speech by New York Times columnist David Brooks. Midway through the speech, he says, what are you putting into your mind? When people worry about your mental diet, they tend to fret about the junk you're pouring into your brain, the trashy videos, the cheap horror movies, the degrading reality TV, and all the hours of Tiger King and Love is Blind you binge-watched when this pandemic started. But I'm not so worried about the dangers of mental junk food. No, my worry is that especially now that you're out of college, you won't put enough really excellent stuff into your brain. I'm talking about what you might call the theory of maximum taste. This theory is based on the idea that exposure to genius has the power to expand your consciousness. If you spend a lot of time with genius, your mind will end up bigger and broader than if you spend your time with only run-of-the-mill stuff. The theory of maximum taste says that each person's mind is defined by its upper limit, the best that it habitually consumes and is capable of consuming. In college, you get assigned hard things. You're taught to look at paintings and think about science in challenging ways. After college, most of us resolve to keep doing this kind of thing, but we're busy and our brains are tired and uh, months and years go by, we get caught up in stuff, settle for consuming Twitter, our maximum taste shrinks. Have you ever noticed that 70% of the people you know are more boring at 30 than they were at 20? Now depending on who you are, this will either be motivating to go and consume some great content or demoralizing because you know you are more boring right now than you were when you were 20. But either way, this theory, it falls short in a number of areas. Who decides what good topics to pursue? What if I'm just not disciplined enough to sustain the practice of habitually consuming great content? Or most important, how does any of that really change me? This morning, I want to spend time redeeming that theory of maximum taste by aligning it to the beautiful glories of the gospel and seeing three things. What God has done, what we must do, and what only Christ will complete. Only when we remember what God has done and what Christ will complete will we have the clarity on what to consume and the freedom to consume it. See, our text begins and ends with the Lord. If we have any hope of cultivating true maximum taste, we must remember to remain within that hopeful boundary. Now, before we dig into our passage for today, let's set the scene of this letter to the Colossians. See, the Colossians were facing two competing influences. On one side, you had mystical polytheism, where people worshipped Greek and Roman gods who covered different areas of life. So they were tempted to simply add Jesus to this list as yet another god. And on the other side, you had the observance of the law, where Jews stressed the only way to show your commitment to the Messiah was by following all the laws of the Torah. Today, we see the same thing. It's just played out differently. Maybe you struggle to believe in God and want to keep your options open, and you'll follow whatever makes you happy in the moment. Or you may fall into a sense of legalism, following a list of do's and don'ts in order to live up to some form of religious or cultural expectation. We think we're above this, but it's subtle. See, later in this letter, just one verse after what we read in Colossians 3, 5, Paul gives a list of don'ts. He says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That third to last one, evil desire, is the Greek word epithemia, And it's not simply what you would think. It's not just a list of evil things that you shouldn't desire. But Tim Keller says it literally translates an epi-desire, an over-desire, an inordinate, magnified, excessive desire. He goes on, epithemia is not so much talking about ordinary desire for something that's bad, it's an over, inordinate, excessive desire for something that is good. And that's the essence of what's wrong with all of us. See, the Pharisees, who were the ones trying to push these legal requirements on the Colossians, they weren't doing anything in that don'ts category. But that's exactly who Paul was challenging. And the polytheists, Who were ironically enforcing their own list of they were ironically enforcing their own list of dos and don'ts by advocating for an even broader list of gods and practices to pursue. See, every single person struggles with epithemia, with taking good things and shaping our life around them. But what always happens? They fail us. Maybe this is your family or your job, your relationships. Maybe it's your quest for power, for success, for happiness. Maybe it's what, you, what people think about you, your looks, your intelligence. The list goes on and on and on. It is literally an infinite list, and it changes. It's not like we just have one for our whole life. It changes regularly. We can picture the parent who works too many hours neglecting their family only to regret it later in life, or the person who spends a fortune ever in pursuit of maintaining beauty and appearance despite the unavoidable effects of aging, or the grass is always greener mentality, someone who constantly picks up and moves to something new, hoping to find happiness and a new job and new friends and new circumstances. This is all of us. And even if we haven't done these specific things, we've all had that impulse. And do you remember that definition of maximum taste? That our mind is defined by its upper limit, the best that it habitually consumes? What happens with our mind with these over-desires? We can't stop thinking about them. We lose sleep if they aren't in a good place. We fall into all sorts of emotions that then impact how we live. That's how you know what your over-desires are, what your epithemias are. They're the things that if your expectations are not met, you're devastated. So Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, addressing these misleading influences and the resulting over-desires that they create in our minds. Our short passage this morning, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, beautifully encapsulates what his response is all about. Namely, that only by the power of God can we cultivate maximum taste for Christ by remembering what God has done, what we then must do, and what only Christ will complete. Now, it's natural to want to go straight to the what we must do part, isn't it? We love those articles, 10 easy steps to weight loss, top five things that every successful person does in the morning. But that's maximum taste from the world do you remember his definition? If you spend a lot of time with genius, your mind will end up bigger and broader. That's simply another epithymia, another excessive desire. We want genius. We want to be impressive. We want intelligence. Instead, what we see here in the very first statement of Colossians 3.1 is what we see all throughout Scripture. If then you have been raised with Christ. Catch this, church. Before we get anywhere close to what we must do, we must understand what God has done. This same phrase, raised with Christ, is used in the beautiful passage of Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that was now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just let that sink in for a moment. You were dead, dead. You could do nothing. But God, being rich in mercy, raised us up with him. Do you see why we cannot go straight to the what we must do? Is there any part of that passage that makes it sound like you must and can do anything? Anytime we think we must do something, we have to stop and remember that it is only by his power that any of our doing is possible. And here's how you know when you truly get it. When you truly understand what God has done for you, it changes you. You're transformed, your loves change, your epithemias change, your mind changes, the things you care about change. And only then do we have a strong foundation to look at what we must do. I came across an article this week uh, where an anonymous donor gave $56 million to Minnesota Public Radio. Shout out to to the Wassers. By far their largest donation ever. And here's what the president said. I thought it was interesting. They only had one quote. He said, This extraordinary gift will have a transformative impact on the future of Minnesota Public Radio and the communities we serve. She used the word transformative because it's true. Do you think Minnesota Public Radio will ever look the same? So it is with those who have been raised with Christ. We have been given a gift so great, we cannot help but be transformed. Mark Dever says it succinctly, you don't need a better you, you need a new you and only Christ can do that. Amen. Only with that foundation of what God has done can then we turn. Can we now turn to what we must do. Let's pick back up in verses one and two. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now Paul makes it sound so much easier than it really is in reality. But what he is calling us to is a change in perspective, from a focus on things of this world, including ourselves, to one of eternal perspective in the kingdom of God, especially with the relatively small day-to-day circumstances of our life. Because remember, that habitual aspect of maximum taste, it's what your mind goes to regularly, day in and day out. Now, many of you know me, and you know I can get pretty passionate about any given topic very quickly. Uh, a few years back, I built a very close relationship um, with my boss at the time. His name is Glenn. He was a wise follower of Christ. And one day, I was popping off about something. I, can't even, I genuinely cannot even remember what it was at this time. But at that point, it was the biggest deal to me. And he lets me, and he lic- lets me vent lessons without any respo- interrupting. And I finally stop after probably repeating the same thing 17 times. And I wait for his response. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Trent. In the scheme of eternity, do you think any of this will matter? (laughs) Instantly, he changed my perspective from right then and there to 10,000 years from now, living in perfect community with Christ and the fellow saints. And now right now, you may be thinking, well, yeah, sure, 10,000 years from now, Trent, great, it'll all be great. But what about now? What about my problems right now? but that's exactly what changed. That perspective shift to seek things above instantly changed my perspective in that moment to exhibit what Paul lists out in verse 12, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, I didn't do it perfectly and I would soon struggle again, but in that moment, it was as if my vision widened from looking down a tunnel to a wide panoramic view and all of a sudden my problems, they didn't seem like such a big deal. So, remember that theory of maximum taste, that each person's mind is defined by its upper limit? Well, we're all products of our environment, are we not? How many of your parents told you about what happens to the good apples that hang out with the bad apples? right? And yet, we act like this isn't true. How often do we hear the phrase, you have to think for yourself? That's such garbage. No one thinks for themselves. Author Alan Jacobs says it this way, everything you think is a response to what someone else has thought and said. And when people commend someone for thinking for herself, they usually mean ceasing to sound like people I dislike and starting to sound more like people I approve of. Or as Jay-Z puts it, we were kids without fathers, so we found our fathers on wax and on the streets and in history. We got to pick and choose the ancestors who would inspire the world we were going to make for ourselves. See, all of us believe in and are transformed by something. We all worship something. We're picking the camps we believe in. But God, Jesus is the only person that is perfect enough to fully satisfy you because he's the one that enables the work in you. No other thing that you can set your mind on can die for you. Everything else is dependent on you, and you know you will fail. My wife, Shane, and I have younger kids not far removed from the baby stage, and it's amazing how when a child is first born, they're utterly dependent on their parents, are they not? And do parents spurn this responsibility? Of course not. They cherish it. They can't understand how they love something so much that can do nothing for them in return. And that is just a shadow of our Heavenly Father's love for us. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So how do we do this practically? How do we set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth? We see from later in the text, it's a turning from yourself and a turning to God's word in his church. First, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have to turn from yourself. Psalm one nineteen fifty nine 59 says, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I just listened to this podcast, uh, a Farnham Street interview with Dr. Andrew Huberman, and he talked about a concept called impulse control. He said, when we're children, we're likely told no all the time. But once you get into adulthood, no one is around to tell you no. So your brain builds up this callousness to no and an acceptance to whatever is thrown at us, like incessant scrolling on social media. His solution was to intentionally give yourself no-goes throughout the day, to stop and say, no, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to do something else. This is exactly what the psalmist is getting at in Psalm 119.59. Slow down, think on your ways, and divert them back to things above. Remember those WWJD bracelets? As corny as they were, they were wise because we needed that. That was a form of impulse control to turn us from ourselves and towards God, which is exactly what Paul is telling his readers to do, specifically to turn to God's word. Now, later in our passage, uh, the first part of Colossians 3, verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, dwelling is the opposite of instant gratification. It literally means to live in. There are so many things competing for our minds. Are you living in or being discipled by the latest show on Netflix or the never-changing, life-altering truth of God's word? It's exactly what Lucius was just talking about. We need to slow down. We need to pray longer. We need to linger in his presence. See, Jesus says in John 8, if you abide in my word, and abide means remain, live in, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Once I heard a faithful pastor answer the question, why do I need to read the Bible? With the heart of many years of personal experience, he recited the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. See, he knew the power of epithemias, of those over-desires in his life, and how easily they could tempt him away from the sure and steadfast purposes of our creator. It It was not out of a sense of obligation that he went to the word, but a sense of desperation. And it's a reinforcing cycle. See, if you're not in the word, it's easy to think you don't need the word. And if you're in the word, it's much easier to see how much you need the word. It reminds me of one of my favorite analogies uh, from Dahadi when he, he talks about walking into a room that smells bad and you notice it and you're like, this smells bad in here. But then you stay there long enough and that smell goes away. This is exactly what Brooks is getting at with maximum taste. It has a compounding effects. We are what we habitually consume. Just like the person who eats healthy consistently is a much better person in a month, in five years and 20 years and so on, so do we need a regular input of God's truth to cultivate maximum taste for Christ because we are so prone to wander. And finally, how do we set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth? It doesn't stop with you as an individual. We are called to do this in the community of the church, in the ecclesia. Let's look back at the rest of verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. C.S. Lewis talks about this by saying, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is, it's a pointed consummation. See, it's not, out of compl- it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. This is one of the reasons we have city groups and dna groups we were not created to figure this out on your own we encourage one another by sharing in our praise of what god has done in our lives and confessing in one another so that we may continue to look more like him going back to the stinky room analogy once you've been there and you you've lost that smell what's the only way to recognize it again is for someone to come in and, and say wow it stinks in here now right now if you're feeling burdened because you have tried to do these things you've started Bible reading plans, you've joined a city group, and yet you still feel hopeless. Know that you're not alone. You're just like everyone else in here. A couple weeks ago, Josh Wassener preached on John 15, where verse five says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That kind of sounds like something dead, doesn't it? It's not that we contribute a little bit or some, it's nothing. Let's look at the final two verses from our passage, verses three and four. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, there are two types of death in Scripture. First is the one we read earlier from Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's where we get ourselves. That's hopeless. But the death we see here is a death in union with Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior, God doesn't just forgive us. No, he actually looks at us as if we had made the sacrifice and died at the cross ourselves. We are literally given the righteousness of Christ as if it were our own. And so when we have union with Christ, we share in his life, we share in his death, we share in his resurrection, and ultimately we share in his glory. Jesus was the only person to ever truly cultivate maximum taste for things above. And if you are in him today, right now, you share in that power that enables, that enables you to cultivate maximum taste for the things of God. Jesus living in us now makes his desire our own. This is the only way we create true transformation. Jesus died, was resurrected, and now lives, inviting you to experience the maximum taste and oh so much more that can only be found in him. Finally, there's a future aspect to this union with Christ. 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. See, when Christ returns, we will fully and finally share in his perfection and experience maximum taste beyond our wildest imaginations our minds will be filled with a perfect understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. Until that time, we are called to be, what the psalmist says, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This passage starts with God and it ends with Christ. Only by his grace By the power of the Holy Spirit and staying planted, abiding, remaining in him, desiring him, can we cultivate maximum taste for Christ and yield fruit in the seasons he has graciously given? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you do it all. You do it all, God. I'm reminded of the hymn. On Christ's solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. God, how often do we pick up sinking sand, thinking it's going to satisfy, thinking it's going to give us completeness, God, but it fails us. It's the over-desire. It's the epithemia, God. Oh, it's so, we are so prone to wander that then goes on like a fetter, like a, like a handcuff, keep me close to you, God. Help us to be so aware of our need for you that it changes our hearts so that it changes it from a have to with like the Jews of the religious expectations and it makes that a get to. We find joy, we find peace, we find all that we seek in your word, in your community and abiding in you, God. Thank you that you do it all. It's the only reason we have hope. So we pray that you would be with our people um, and continue to grow and shape us to look more like your son. We thank you. It is only by your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.